Again, we're very thankful for the thoughtfulness of the church to allow the Lindblads to uh, regain their footing by providing uh, pulpit supply for a few weeks. And we're very thankful for our good friend, John Sanford, uh, who has been with us as his evening church, as he likes to say, for 30 years. And by the way, and I probably shouldn't tell you this, but has every sermon note from every sermon I've ever preached in 30 years, and I can't preach old sermons because he knows when it was preached, what the date was almost within a year, what the text was, and all of the rest. Despite all of that, (laughs) or perhaps because of some of it, we love you, brother, and we're thankful for your presence and for your ministry this evening. I have all those sermons because I know what gold is versus fool's gold. A few notes on the just the breaking of the text. Um, I'm not sure why, but the uh, the text is broken at four one in the chapter headings, and really four two is the beginning of a completely new section. And you might ask, well. I broke it in an odd spot myself, uh, stopping at verse 15, where really 16 through 4.1 goes with what I preached this morning. I, I did that for a couple of reasons. One, to balance out the, the length of the sermons, but secondly, because his um, discussion of the women of Zion in chapter 3 is balanced very nicely by verse 4.4, where it's the, the daughters of Zion, which he underlines for uh, for redemption. It's really two sections of the text. There's the completion of chapter 3 with, uh, again, talking about divine retribution, and then uh, chapter 4, beginning with verse 2, talking about the glorious future. And what we see at the, in verses 15 through uh, 4.1 is the climax of what we've seen in chapters 2 and 3 of God's judgment, uh, the justice of his judgment, bringing it down to really a personal level of what this is going to look like for the people on the ground. Um, He picks on the daughters of Zion, the women, as encapsulating the self-seekingness of the people of Zion. Uh, The arrogance of chapter 14 and 15 of devouring the poor, crushing their people, is reflected really in the verbs in verse 16 of the the arrogance, the haughtiness of the daughters of Zion. And they're they're personified as really characterizing the people. Uh, In fact, you know, the the term is used, even though it's talking about women, the, the title daughters of Zion usually refers to the entire people of, of Judah. So we're not, it's not that uh, Isaiah has, uh, suffers from misgonomy or hatred of women, it's just he picks them out as a, uh, uh, an example here. And we have uh, a couple in this short section on the women. It's, it's interesting, there's two, two sections of contrasts. Um, you know, you have what the people, what the women look like now, 
what they're going to look like in the future. Um, and then you have at the at the end the grim reality of what this will like as look like as a society. Verse sixteen is uh, the Lord said, "Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet." You just see the ostentatiousness, the wealth, the haughty arrogance of the sort of, look at me, look at how great I am, how rich I am, how beautiful I am. Everything about, you know, that you see in these verses, everything about their dress and their manner calls attention to themselves. In our present age, you know, you can picture some of the Hollywood's movie stars, maybe picture a, a New York gala event with people, you know, coming in with the, um, the, the, the fancy cars, the, the chauffeur-driven limousines, the very expensive $1,000, $10,000 dresses, the fancy hairdos, the jewelry, um, and all of that, showing off their expensive finery and, in our age, uh, considerable female flesh. And then we have... Uh, in this text here, those are the, the daughters or the wives of the rulers that are crushing the people. Right? Sort of a, an amazing contrast. You have on one hand, you know, this, these people are saying, look at me, look how great, look how powerful I am. And their husbands or their fathers are, are just robbing the poor, as, as Isaiah puts it grinding the face of the poor. And it really highlights their exploitive attitude. But in verse 17, we see the judgment of the Lord. Therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. So the women who were once so attractive and so beautiful are now repugnant. Instead of a fancy hairdo, uh, maybe spend $1,000 or more at the, the beauty parlor. And by the way, that's not an exorbitant price, <laughs> not in today's world. But instead of that beautiful hair, a scabby head. The word that's used for scab here is uh, used in uh, Leviticus 13.2 for leprous sores. Not a, very, not a very pretty picture. Beautiful hair due to leprous sores. Now, expose their private parts is really a, it's a guess on a Hebrew word. We're not exactly sure what that means. Uh, but it seems to be referring to the fact that prisoners were uh, usually marched naked and uh, off into exile. So they go from finery and fancy dresses to shameful nakedness. In that day, for Isaiah, that's a, usually it's a day of judgment uh, it can be far away, it can be near. That's just how he uses the word in that day. It's a very flexible term. And then we see, again, that theme which we talked about this morning, take away. You know, he took away the mighty men, he took away the things that men were proud of, he took away the leaders, and now he takes away their finery, their pride, their jewelry, and they're left with nothing. We have in verse 18, uh, 
a long list of the fancy things that, uh, that the Lord takes away from them, uh, that they're stripped, which are stripped from them. I'm not sure what some of the words mean because they're, um, again, Hebrew, they're rare Hebrew nouns, but it doesn't make any difference really what exactly they're referring to. You can picture fancy brooches, fancy dresses, big diamond rings, bracelets, whatever in, in today's world. One that I will note, though, is the, the term crescents probably refers to um, charms in worship of the goddess of the moon, the moon goddess. So there was that, uh, that untrustworthiness, that uh, dependence upon false gods that, that we've seen earlier, even worn in their, in their jewelry. And the issue, of course, itself is not jewelry or fancy dresses. The issue is the haughtiness and the showing off, the pride. In verse 24, we have uh, Isaiah uses this phrase, instead of, four times we see, instead of perfume, instead of a belt, instead of well-set hair, sort of four, like a death knell, instead of, instead of, instead of, just that, the replacement. And each one, of course, is a, is a contrast. Uh, one of the translations in, uh, for the first line, instead of perfume, there will be rottenness, it, he uses the word stench, which I think is a strong but a, a rather good translation of that. Instead of beautiful perfume, there'll just be a horrid stench. And instead of the beauty care, the hours spent maybe in a mud bath or in ointments or whatever sort of skin care there is, there's branding. All of these are marks of what it would be like for a woman who is hauled off into captivity. So we go from an attractive woman, someone you look at a couple times, look at carefully, she's beautiful, her clothes are beautiful, to someone who appears very, very repugnant, that you'd rather not look at it. It's very, very ugly. So from pride, they're reduced to shame. And of course, I, I remind you, we're not just talking about the women of Judah. We're talking that they're just a personification. This is uh, all of Judah would be punished, and all of Judah would have taken away, again, that phrase, taken away the very things that they're proud of. And then Isaiah, well, I would just say one thing that, you know, there's, you, you can picture that, let's say, in People's Magazine you know, or some, some publication like that, you might look through and see the picture of a beautiful Hollywood movie star or a, a, a rich person. You'd look at the picture and yeah, admire it, look, spend a little bit of time. But now it's a picture you look at them and say, oh, that's ugly, and you quickly turn the page because you don't, you don't want to see somebody who is that, that ugly. It, yeah, just because of the, the punishment and what's been taken away from them and what, what's happened to them, what's been done to them. And then we move from an example of uh, the women to just the general effects on society. Um, 
we have in verse 25, the men are dead. All the men have died in battle, even the great and mighty men. The men, if we go back to those modern, that modern picture, who walked with these elegant ladies down the aisle, down the, you know, the, the red carpet or whatever, they've fallen in combat too. And the women are left as widows, not having a man. The gates, which used to be the, the center of activity, the social meeting place where court was held, where um, economic trades were made and deals were made, they're now in mourning. They're empty. There's none of that there. And so in desperation, seven women take hold of one man seeking, um, seeking a husband, somebody who would take away their disgrace, not even in a in an equal marriage of I'll be your wife if you'll provide me with clothing and food, but um, I'll, I'll bring my own food. I'll, I'll bring my own clothes. I just, uh, I want to have the, uh, the disgrace of being a widow taken away from me. So in three, verse 3, 6, we had the men. That was, um, for a man shall take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, you have a cloak. So in, in that verse, we have men who are taking care, taking hold of one, seeking a ruler, but in vain. And here we have the women in an equal act of desperation, seeking a husband. In desperation, take seven women taking hold of a man. And in both cases, it's failure. We have the women whose allurements, they did them no good. They made themselves pretty. They spent a lot of time, skin care, nice hairdos, beautiful dresses. They didn't win a man. Instead, they're begging anyone to take them. So the, the allurements, the pride, the things that, that they are proud of accomplished nothing. So as Mortier says, the men placed reliance on worldly social strength only to find such reliance always perishes for want of people to rely on. The women gave their all to allurement, only to find that in the end there were no takers. How well Isaiah began this section with the call to refuse trust in men. Again, how well Isaiah began this section with the call to refuse trust in men. Again, the theme that talked about this morning, where do you put your trust? Where do the people put their trust there? In this case, beauty, and it failed. A couple observations. One is that the sin of pride is not to be trifled with. God hates pride. God hates haughtiness. And uh, that's, an, that's an easy sin to fall into, isn't it? We all want to be proud of ourselves or, yeah, be proud of, of a lot of things. Maybe proud of our church or proud of our, our heritage or proud of a lot of things. God does not like pride. Second observation, again, that, that verse that Isaiah has repeated several times, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For what account is he? 
and the futility of trusting in man is shown right here in these, these verses here. Uh, the things of man will in time be stripped away, and these women found themselves naked, and the time will come in a sense that each of us will find ourselves naked as we, we leave this life. But there's also the, as we talked about this morning, that God may take away everything we have pride in, may take away everything we trust in, and we're going to be left saying, what do we trust in or who do we trust in? As um, a final observation on this, this section is God's judgment is something to be feared. As Horton comments, he says, God's judgment is the fear to end all fears. God's judgment is the fear to end all fears. It's interesting if you do a study in scripture, the word fear is used a lot. But usually the, the ultimate, the only fear that's valid is a fear of God. It's the only thing you need to really fear is the fear of God. For it is the end to all fears. And that ends the section. And if I were to end my sermon here, you would say, well, that was a, that was a bummer. That was a lousy Maybe not a lousy sermon, but you say, that was a discouraging sermon. Uh, we're not going to invite that guy Sanford back again. <laughs> he doesn't have anything cheerful to say. And it, it'd be like walking out of a movie theater saying, oh, that's a movie I don't ever want to see again. But that's not where Isaiah leaves us, and that's not where Christ ever leaves us, in a, a dismal state without hope. And I would just, as an aside, just thinking before the sermon, there's a lot of hope, but you know, we don't deserve it, do we? Yeah, we don't deserve hope, but there is hope, and Christ gives us that hope, and, and that's something we'll see in the next section. Okay, so we see some real contrast here. It's, it's just an amazing switch, because, you know, we've talked about rottenness, stench, baldness, branding, lament, and mourn. And then we flip over and the, the verbs are just the, or the adjectives are the opposite. Beauty, glorious, fruitfulness, good pride, and honor, and holiness. From paucity, from poverty, to being, having absolutely nothing, to superabundance. And again, we're left with the question, how do we get there, you know? How do we go from being stripped naked, marched off to Babylon, um, to this glorious future where there's abundance and we're with the Lord? Well, uh, Isaiah gives a little bit of a hint. Again, you have to read the rest of the book to, to understand it. But it's an amazing, uh, amazing contrast, amazing transition. If you look at uh, verses 2 and 3, it's, it's, it's interesting. They're all passives. The verbs are passives. They're telling us about a changed condition, but you're left, you know, it's, okay. Uh, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be uh, beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the Lord shall be the pride and honor of the survivors. And he who is left in Jerusalem will be or shall be called. And so you're left... Passive, but you don't have a, it's not active. In other words, you don't know, how did this happen? 
You know, you've got this new condition, but the, since there's no, since it's a passive, you don't have a subject. And you say, how, how did that happen? And Isaiah leaves us again in, in a little bit of, a tension, of tension. But in verse 4 and 5, we suddenly get a subject, and it's the Lord. He's the only actor in this, this section. Uh, there's not a statement that says, and Israel finally repented and got their act together. No, it's just the Lord will do this, the Lord will do that, the Lord will do this. He's, he's the only actor here. He is the one who washes away the filth and cleanses. It's not Judah, it's not Jerusalem, it's the Lord. And again, we find that, that phrase, in that day, it's used 53 times in Isaiah. It, just, it means sometime in the future, sometimes at the final eschaton, sometime before then. But in that day, this is going to happen. Usually it's a, uh, it's a day of judgment, but this is the first time in the book that it's not a day of judgment. It's got a positive meaning to it. And Isaiah introduces a mysterious figure, the branch of the Lord. It's not, it doesn't appear in the Bible before this. Who's the branch of the Lord? Well, think about what a branch is. A branch comes from something, like a branch of a tree, right? So the branch of the Lord, it comes from the Lord, it's, but a branch is also a part of the tree. So the branch is in some way connected, a part of the Lord. It's as far as we can take the, the imagery here, Later on in verse um, 11, chapter 11, 1, we read, uh, there will come forth a shoot, sort of like a branch, from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And then in Jeremiah, it's used a couple of times, Jeremiah 23, 5, 33, 15, Zechariah 318. They, they develop this theme of the branch of the Lord, and it becomes a messianic title. And of course, as we get into the New Testament, we know who the branch of the Lord is. So we have this messianic figure that Isaiah introduces, but doesn't tell us a whole lot about it. Uh, one of the other hints he gives us, it's, he says that the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. Normally in Isaiah, not exclusively, but normally, he uses those words to talk about Jehovah, the Lord God himself. Now he talks about the branch as being beautiful and glorious. And then we... He says, the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. A, a good pride, not a pride in oneself or one's accomplishment, but a pride in the fruit of the land. Now this, this could refer to one of two things, either the abundance which the Messiah brings uh, the renewal of creation, the removal of the curse and the shortages in 3.1. Remember, we, this, this morning, the Lord will take away support and supply, bread and water, but now you've got a land that's abundant with fruit, 
lots and lots of grapes and figs and pomegranates and you know, whatever else they grew there. It could also refer to the Messiah himself, and that does justice to the words pride and honor. Uh, either way, it's a, it's a picture of abundance, of, uh, of beauty, either in the Messiah or what the Messiah brings, and those two are pretty close to each other. And it's in contrast, of course, to the shame and disgrace, which we uh, read about a few minutes ago. You go from shame and disgrace to pride and honor to beauty and gloriousness. And so now we find ourselves in the situation, the lofty pride of men is humbled, and the Lord alone is exalted in that day, Isaiah 2.11. As we get on in uh, reading from verse 3 on, if you think about it, it is nothing short of mind-blowing, to use a theological term. It's pretty, the imagery which Isaiah uses is amazing. So he says that um, those, the survivors, um, let me, okay, will be called holy. Now, which of us would say, I'm holy? I certainly wouldn't stand up here and say, I'm a holy man. I don't think anybody else would do that. But in this day, all of these people are going to be holy. It's a word that's used exclusively of God or the things connected with God and his worship. Uh, for example, the, the temple or the, the, the instruments within the temple were holy because they were connected with God. It's rarely used of men. The only case in which it's used of men are the Levitical commands of be holy for I am holy. And that's sort of a... Not saying you are holy, but that's something you to strive for. And also the priests, after their consecration, are holy because they've gone through this consecration and they've been made ready to go into the presence of the Lord. We know in a sense, although they're outwardly made holy, which means they can go into the presence of the Lord, they're not inwardly holy. But all of a sudden, everybody's holy. Men in general, they, you know, there's a spectrum of unclean, clean, and holy. And people generally oscillate between clean and unclean. And the only time that men are allowed in the presence of the Lord is when they've gone into, they've gone through this consecration. Only once a year was the high priest allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, very briefly. That's how far people are from God, who alone is holy. But now again, everybody is called holy and in the presence of the Lord. An amazing transition. Uh, you know, for a, a, a man who was either clean or unclean to go into the presence of the Lord, it would mean death. If, if someone were to barge into the Holy of Holies or even go in with the wrong incense, as we as we know in, um, uh, in the Pentateuch, it would be death. But now, everybody is holy. A radical change. We don't, um, 
Holy is a, it's an interesting word. It's a characteristic of God. It, you know, sometimes you hear the simple definition to be holy is separate. It's not, there's more to it than that. Um, you know, I can put something aside, my keys, and say I'm separating them. That doesn't mean they're holy, even if I'm separated them. Holy is a characteristic of God, and he, he's separated from his people, or separated from everything else because of this characteristic of holiness. And in one sense, that, that separation is gone in this passage. So how does this happen? How do we go from where we are, where none of us would say, oh, I'm holy, to being called holy? Well, we read um, in verse 4, the Lord will have washed away the filth of the daughter's and cleanse the blood stains of Jerusalem. Washed is used 73 times in the Old Testament. 53 of those times talk about ceremonial washing. And the word cleansed is here is used almost exclusively of ceremonial cleansing. So the Lord will ceremoniously cleanse away the filth, the dirt, the unholiness of his people. Just looking at one, one word, one phrase for a minute, which I, I find rather marvelous. The Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. Now, notice again that this balances out his, his diatribe against the daughters of Zion, which we talked about a few minutes ago. They're the ones who are picked out that he's going to wash away their filth. But as a, uh, uh, again, uh, a depiction of what he'll do for all the people. He emphasizes that. Hebrew itself is a very concrete language. It doesn't have a lot of abstract verbs or abstract words in it. And, and sometimes that can be really, it can be frustrating. You know, you go, oh, what does this word mean? And you, you tr dig down and you find out there's not a whole lot there. It's a very concrete word. It's not like Greek where you can talk about the word righteous and go to a, a dictionary and find 50 pages on the word righteous and its background. So it can be frustrating, but one of the nice things about Hebrew is it sometimes makes for some great sermon illustrations because it's concrete. And here's an example of it. Uh, filth in this case, um, it refers either to vomit or excrement. Sorry, not a pretty picture after lunch, but that's what the Hebrew says. Um, so we have this picture. Picture you're walking down the street, and there's a drunk. He is so drunk, he's vomited all over himself, and he's pooped on himself. Ugly picture. Someone you sort of, you want to back away from. You don't want him getting too near him. He stinks. You want to go on the other side of the road. But the Lord washes away that filth, that vomit, that excrement. There's another point to be made there, too. It, again, we're not... The, the word refers to filth that comes from inside us, right? And that's what the Lord washes away. But isn't that the sin that we find so hard to get rid of? I mean, we all have 
figured out how to look pretty good on the outside. It, people who know me say, look, John, we know you. Don't, don't kid around. We, but it's, it's the, the jealousy, the lust, the greed, the anger, the sins of the heart, which are so hard for us to get rid of, that if you're striving to be a good Christian, you struggle with, and you just don't seem to be able to get rid of those. You know, those are the ones where, you know, in Matthew, um, Jesus says, what, it comes, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles a man. Or when he talks to the Pharisees and scribes, says, uh, you clean the outside of the cup. We're all good at cleaning the outside of the cup, but inside full of greed and self-indulgence. And so often that's our condition, isn't it? But that's what the Lord washes away and cleanses. Those sins that we just can't seem to overcome, the Lord washes that away. And the blood stains. The Lord washes away the blood stains. The uncleanliness, the social violence that's left, that has left its mark on the people. So it's the Lord's effort that makes his people holy, not our efforts. And it's by a uh, spirit of judgment and spirit of burning. Pictures used in the Old Testament of, of cleansing, just like you burn away the dross and making good, good metal. Um, the same image which we'll see, you see later on in Isaiah. Remember when he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and seraphim takes a hot coal and puts it up to his mouth and burns away that uncleanliness. It's, the holiness is not which the Lord gives us is not just a simple pardon. It's a, it's a cleansing action of, of burning away, but of wiping away also. So we have a new people, and then he describes a new city. Then the Lord will, um, will create over the whole of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and a shining of flame, flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy, there will be a booth for shade, there will be a booth for shade by day from the heat, and a refuge and shelter from the storm and rain. The word he uses here for um, the Lord will create is the word bara. Um, it's used of divine acts only. Um, it's the word used in Genesis 1, God created. It's exclusively God who, who baraz or creates in that fashion. So he creates a new city. In 113, the Lord says, I hate your assemblies. I can't stand them. But now his, the assemblies of the people are covered by a canopy in his presence. Yeah, um, he will create over the whole site of Mount Zion in her assemblies, a cloud by day and a smoking and shining of flaming fire by night. Of course, you recognize that imagery, I think, from, uh, from Genesis or from Exodus, where uh, 
the Lord was with his people with that the flaming fire at night and the cloud. And that was the Lord's guidance of his people. It was the Lord's protection of his people. Remember, it was the fire and the smoke that separated them from the Egyptian army. And it, it symbolized his presence, his protection of his people. And here it is here, again, over the new Zion, over the, his own people, which are now us. The, the Lord's glory, which we had read about, which caused um, an overthrow of society, now resides with his people. It's, it's an interesting image because the glory of the Lord, even in Exodus, is a thing of terror. Um, you know, you have God's protection, but you think of Mount Zion and the earthquakes and the smoke and the people trembling in fear. And they say, Moses, you, you, you go up to talk to him. We, we, we can't be close to him or else we're going to die. But here now you have the Lord's presence with his people. Without that, that sense of fear, the Lord, in chapter 3, it's the world that pillages his people. In this chapter, it's the Lord, and the Lord allows them to pillage his people. In this chapter, he protects his people. And then the word that's used for canopy is a word that's used always of a wedding canopy. Uh, can't build a, the doctrine of the marriage of the lamb just out of that. But that's the beginning of that imagery of the, the intimacy of God with his people, of a wedding canopy, God being that, or God creating this wedding canopy over his people. So an amazing change from fear, from God letting the world pillages people from judgment, righteous judgment, to being with the Lord, being with his glory, being protected by the Lord. And that's the change that is taking place, will take place for us, his people. A couple observations and, and then we'll close here. So, the, you know, in the first part, we have to ask ourselves, well, what is it, again, what is it that we trust in? What do we look to? Is it personal wealth, strength, pride? Uh, you know, I'm a young man and I'm strong, or I'm a beautiful woman, or I'm really smart, or whatever. All ephemeral things. Those are all things taken away. Or is trust in the Lord himself? As I said last time, or, you know, said this morning, Lord... The Lord who cannot be taken away and who's always with us. So there's a real contrast between the false fading beauty of this world and the true lasting beauty of the Lord or the branch of the Lord. The uh, word that's used for beauty in 3.18, the beauty that's taken away, is the same beauty in 4.2, which describes uh, the beauty of the branch. So which beauty is it that we would seek? Which beauty is it that we would have? The ephemeral of the world or the beauty of the Lord? And there's tremendous, tremendous hope and comfort in this last section of being with the Lord, being in his presence. The shelter and protection from the world, 
The Lord may be all that we have, but what more do we need than the Lord himself? And the washing away of filth, that, uh, as I described, that inner struggle that we never seem to be, be able to completely win out and the, or win over, and the promise that the day will come when the Lord washes all of that away and we truly are holy people before him. In the intimacy and presence of the Lord. Beautiful picture. And how does this happen? The Lord accomplishes it all. We have a beautiful future that awaits us. Something to hope in. Something to look forward to. Something to contemplate and to enjoy. Just as you look forward to any great thing. A vacation or a wedding or the birth of a child. You, you sort of... You look forward to that and say, boy, won't that be great. Here we have something that's going to be even greater that we can enjoy and look forward to.